And while they are doing that, you can uh, turn your Bibles to Ruth, chapter 1. We are beginning a new series in the book of Ruth. So Ruth, chapter 1. And we'll be doing things a little bit different today. I'm not going to read through the entire passage before we begin our begin the sermon because it's a long passage. And so we're just going to read through it and talk about it as, as we go. So Ruth chapter 1. Okay. Well, uh, when Ruth and I get into arguments, I got permission to share the story. Um, but when Ruth and I get into arguments, we, we tend to argue quietly, uh, especially in public. There's, there's just, you know, there's something about people hearing us argue in public that's just, you know, kind of shameful we, for us. We just don't want people to hear it. Um, for example, we were in Publix one time, and uh, Ruth's sister was with us. We were arguing about something, and of course, so we were, we were whisper arguing, and I was saying, I don't, I don't appreciate what you did over there. And so we had this whisper argument, and her sister is standing uh, a couple feet away from us, kind of just looking at us like, like this, like, what? And she said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean for you to see that. Um, so we, we argue quietly. Um, one night, the night was uh, April... 11, 2014, at 8 p.m., that's when it was. We were having an argument, and uh, I don't remember what it was about. It's not really important, but uh, we were having an argument, and she got upset at me, and I must have said something uh, to upset her, and she, uh, she went into our bedroom and, and slammed the door. And I put air quotes around, slammed the door, because when Ruth slams the door, it's like me closing a door normally. Um, and so she slammed the door, and as soon as she did that, the siren went off in our apartment. Just the loudest thing you could possibly imagine just starts blaring in our apartment. And she opens the door back up, and she says, I didn't mean to! Like she did it. Of course, I knew it wasn't her, so I started looking for where it was coming from. It was coming from a hole in the wall, and there was a little pipe coming out of it. And uh, I'm a fixer, so I wanted to fix it, so I got a bunch of socks and stuffed it in the hole. Surprisingly, that didn't do anything. Um, I didn't know what was going on. And then I started hearing people running up and down the hallway, knocking on the doors and saying, it's a fire, it's a real fire. And I'm very used to fire drills, not used to real fires, so I didn't know what to do in a real fire. Um, So we just got our dog. I got my pregnant wife. She was seven months pregnant at the time with Liam. And we got... Our, she got her laptop because um, she just got something, and we walked down the stairs, and there's this big crowd of people in front of our apartment complex, and they're all looking up at something. So we go and we look, and we see just the biggest fire that I've ever seen, um, in real life at least, just dancing on top of the roof of our apartment building. And uh, it's kind of like amazing at first, like, wow, that's amazing. But then... Uh, the apartment manager, complex manager, came out and he talked to all, all of us and he told us we weren't going to be able to go back to our apartments um, and that we would probably lose everything that was in there. Um, and then he said, uh, if you don't have somewhere to stay for the night, a Red Cross is here to help you out. 
Um, and then that's kind of when it hit us. It's like, oh, well, we're having an apartment fire and we're losing everything. <laughs> now, a lot of you have gone through something like that before, like a fire or a flood. Um, and for us, we, we, you know, by some miracle, we had renter's insurance. I thought to get that right after we got married. This was about six years later, and I, we hadn't. So it wasn't the end of the world. But I remember when we got into our new apartment, we had to get one quick, and so we got this tiny little one-bedroom apartment, and we moved in. Moving in was really easy because we didn't have anything, and so we just walked in, and we were moved in. And the apartment was just empty, you know? And uh, I'm at, this is, uh, I'm about to graduate from seminary, and Ruth is seven months pregnant, and, you know, we just, it's so empty, and you used to, all of this stuff being in there, all of the stuff getting ready for the baby, this new crib, all uh, my books from seminary, all the you know, furniture and whatnot, and it's all gone in the room, just very, very empty. And uh, that's a feeling I won't ever forget, I don't think. Um, and in our story today, we'll be reading about a woman who loses much, much more than just her things, and how her life starts off very full, but becomes very empty. And it's hard for her to imagine it ever being full again. And of course, that is the book of Ruth that we'll be going through. Um, the book of Ruth is a great book. And of course, I'm obligated to teach through the book of Ruth at least once, because my wife's name is Ruth. Um, and it's, it's, the book of Ruth is meant to be read in one sitting. So I would encourage you to do that at some point. Uh, as we're going through this series, but we'll be going through it chapter by chapter. So we'll be doing chapter one today, and then so on and so forth for the next few weeks. Um, Ruth is commonly thought of as a love story, and while it certainly has the elements of a love story, it's, uh, it's got tragedy and redemption and uh, you know marriage and a baby and a man fighting for uh, the sake of a woman, to some extent, uh, it's, it's not just a love story. It is, uh, it's much, much more than that. And I hope that's made clear by the time we finish the book. Okay? Um, so, when we get into the context of the book of Ruth, it tells us in the very first lines about the setting of the story. And it says in verse 1, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed, mine says. Literally, it's when the judges judged. Okay? And that's the... That's the period of the book of Judges, is when the b- book of Ruth is um, occurring. In our Thursday night group, we're going through the book of Judges. We're at the very end of it. And uh, if some of you haven't read through the book, I understand. It's just, man, there's just so much going on through the book. Um, what's going on is that it's before the time of the monarchy, um, after the book of Joshua, and Israel is supposed to conquer the land of Canaan. That's what they have been charged to do. And they kind of do it, but they don't do it the whole way. And so in the very beginning of the book, God is just furious with them. He says, what have you done? He asked them, what have you done? And uh, a commentator on the book calls uh, the book and the, everything that happens in it the Canaanization of Israel. Because as the book goes on, Israel has not conquered the people that are in the land, and so they become more and more like uh, their, their neighbors. They incorporate the worship of the different gods that are surrounding them with the worship of Yahweh, 
And as you can imagine, that's problematic. Um, <clears throat> the book culminates, the book of Judges, in a story about a man, a Levite, and a concubine. And the story is written to resemble the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, And so it's telling us that Israel has gotten to the point where they are just as wicked, or possibly, in my opinion, worse than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, the book ends with the civil war in Israel where the tribe of Benjamin, or not Benjamin, yes, Benjamin, um, you reacted faster than me, Jonathan, there you go. The tribe of Benjamin is almost completely wiped out. And the book just kind of ends there. Um, we used to have a class in seminary that ended with the book of Judges, and that's where you ended the class. And it's just like, see you later. <laughs> have a great summer. Um, <laughs> so, if you're reading the books in order, okay, the book of Ruth is probably happening somewhere in the middle of the book of Judges. We don't know exactly where, but somewhere in the middle, somewhere where um, Israelites would be able to travel freely from Bethlehem to Moab. But if you're just reading the books in order, if you're reading Genesis to Exodus to Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, then Ruth, you begin to look at this plan of the redemption of the world by God, and you look at Judges, and you wonder, how can it ever happen? It just doesn't seem possible. And especially when you get to the book of Ruth, and it's set in the time of Judges, um, you wonder, how could a small story about two widows living in such a terrible time in Israel's history, um, how could that make any difference at all? And so hopefully we'll find out about that in the next few weeks as we study the book. Ken, you won't find out. You'll be gone. But everybody else will. Um, <laughs> so that's, where, that's the context of the book of Ruth, and that's where we are in chapter 1. Chapter 1, let's get into the story, verses 1 through 4. Um, tragedy strikes a family in Bethlehem. Verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. Now in the book of Judges, there's this cycle of sin, right? There's Israel would sin, God would pronounce judgment on them, they would cry out to him, he'd deliver a judge, and then he'd deliver them, and there'd be peace, and there'd, there'd be sin again. The cycle would just continue and continue and spiral down and down and down and down. Until eventually, I'm in the last few chapters, uh, there are no more judges. But for the most part, there's the cycle of sin and judgment and deliverance. Um, <clears throat> and here, you wonder maybe where they are in that cycle, if there's a famine going on. We don't know for sure. But we see that there's uh, this famine in the land, and it's difficult for us to relate to a famine. Um, but here, it was bad enough that a man from Bethlehem was willing to become a resident alien in the land of Moab. Okay, And if you know your history of the Old Testament, you know that Israel and the Moabites uh, are enemies. You don't often get along, right? Um, first, in the, earlier in the book of Judges, you have the whole story about Eglon and him uh, ruling over and oppressing is- the Israelites so much for almost 20 years that they have to they cry out to the Yahweh finally, and the Lord has to deliver them with Ehud and the sword and the fat and everything. Um, and then before that, 
In the book of Numbers, there's a story about uh, the <coughs> the uh, people of Israel and how they were seduced by the daughters of Moab, and the people of Israel worshipped pagan gods as a result. So uh, God had to send his judgment upon them. Um, so, of course, the people of Moab didn't worship Yahweh. They worship a god called uh, Chemish, Chemosh, um, who is repeatedly referred to in the Old Testament as the t- detestable god Chemish. Okay? So he is not viewed highly in the eyes of the Lord, and he was a, a terrible god who accepted a human sacrifice. Um, so this was Moab. So if for a man to take his wife and two sons to escape the famine over to Moab, the famine must be severe. Uh, And so he goes to reside over there. And that's what's going on in verse 1. There's a famine in the land. In verse 2, and of course, don't let the irony escape you that Bethlehem, the house of bread, is out of food. All right, so it's usually a fertile place with food. There is no food there, so they escape to Moab. In verse 2, it says, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Um, I'm not going to go through the meaning of every single name in this book, but um, go, some of the meanings are uh, interesting and important, and especially later on, there's a man who has no name, and it's pretty uh, interesting to see the contrast there and discuss that. So a few of the names here are interesting. The one is Elimelech. His name is, means, my God is king. Now, that's pretty interesting in a time in which um, the book of Judges, the theme of the book of Judges was, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every di- everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Um, God was supposed to be the king of Israel. Israel did not follow or obey God as their king. And then ultimately in uh, Samuel, we'll see that Israel wants a human king. Um, but it's interesting that Elimelech here says, my God is king. And so it tells us something about his parents, at least. And then the name of his wife, Naomi, is my pleasant one, which is a nice name. It's nice to have a nice name in there as well, my pleasant one. But then the name of their two sons, Machlon and Kilion, um, were more, mean more reflective of the times that they lived in. I'm not exactly sure what they mean, but sickly and possibly annihilation or death. It's not what you and I would name our children. Um, But it tells us a little bit about the times they were born in. They weren't sure if they were going to survive necessarily. But they do. And they're Ephrathites. That just means they're of the clan of Ephrath. And um, they're in Judah, in Bethlehem, and they journey over to Moab. Moab isn't a very long journey. It's just southeast of Bethlehem on the other side of the Dead Sea. Okay, so you have this family, you have the setting all set up that the family had to leave Bethlehem. Um, Not necessarily because Elimelech is being disobedient, but because he's trying to find food for his family. He's trying to care for them. So he goes to a place where it seems like there is food, even though he would have to be a foreigner residing there, and he would have to leave Bethlehem. Verse 3. Then Elimelech... Naomi's husband died, and she was left with her two sons. So we get our first tragic event in the book, and the author doesn't explain why or how he died, 
But that's just, he died. And he says it so tersely and so succinctly that it just leaves us wondering um, and kind of feeling what happened and feeling for Naomi and her two sons. Um, It doesn't seem to be any type of punishment or anything like that. It's just a tragic death. So now Naomi is a widow in a foreign land um, with her two little boys. But life is still bearable because she has those two sons with her, and so there's still hope for continuing the line of Elimelech. Verse 4 continues. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years. Okay, and so um, the fact that Naomi's sons were taking Moabite women as, as wives probably wasn't the easiest thing for her. But they had wives, and so that meant the possibility of children. Um, if I was still discussing the meaning of names, Orpa has something to do with the back of the neck, and Ruth simply means comfort or friendship. <clears throat> but as you notice from this verse, verse 4, um, they lived in Moab for about 10 years, and we see no mention of children. So Naomi has these sons, they get married, but there's no children. Um, But there does seem to be a little hope, at least, that maybe they would have children. But then, tragedy strikes Naomi again in verse 5. Then both Machlon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. So, not only does Naomi lose her husband, but she loses each of her children. Um, and they were, they were grown men who had been married, but they were still her children, her boys. So Naomi must suffer another tragedy. So now the question becomes, what's going to happen to Naomi? What are they going to do? Where are they going to go next? Um, we know that widows have a particular hard time of things in general, but Naomi was a widow in a foreign land without a husband, without sons, without family, without land. Um, at her age, she probably didn't have a father to go back to that young widows would have. And she probably did not have any prospects for marriage, especially in Moab. Um, she's a widow in a male-dominated society without any skills or trade. Um, she's certainly at a point in her life in this time in history where it's hard to imagine any sort of semblance of a full life. So let's read on and see what Naomi does. We go to the second section. Uh, Naomi's pleased to her daughters-in-law. So then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Okay. So we notice Naomi leaves, decides to leave the land of Moab to return to Bethlehem because the Lord... Uh, which is Yahweh, that's the name of the covenant uh, Lord, the covenant name for God. He has given land, uh, the land food once again. So it makes sense for Naomi to leave Moab, where she is a foreigner, um, to go back to her hometown where people may know her, and if she knows the law, she would know that um, the Lord has provided many ways for the community of Israel to care for the poor and for the widow. He's provided many ways to do that. Of course, that is assuming 
that there are people in Israel that are still concerned with the law. Remember, we're in the time of Judges. So you really don't know exactly what's going on in the hearts of the people. So she decides to go back uh, to Judah, to Bethlehem, to the house of bread, because the house of bread is getting bread again. So if you're wondering why Naomi would bring her two daughters-in-law with her to Bethlehem, where they would have the same problem as Naomi would have had in Moab, which are they are widows in a foreign land, Naomi addresses that problem in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lift up their voices and wept. Um, this is the first piece of dialogue in the book so far. A lot has happened, and we're just now getting to hear someone's voice. Um, Naomi recognizes that if Orpah and Ruth come with her to Bethlehem, they will be widows, foreign widows, Moabite widows in Judah. And their prospects for remarriage will be minimal. So she tells them her to return home, and she invokes the name of Yahweh again, the, the covenant Lord. And this is the first time that we see in the book a very important word, um, chesed, okay? And that is the word for kind of the awkward translation of loving kindness or uh, loyal love, which you guys have probably heard of before. But I'll give you a, a, few, a couple examples where it's used. It's a word that's often used to describe the Lord. In Exodus fifteen thirteen, it's used in a song about God after he delivered Israel from the Egyptians. So it says, in your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. And then again, in Numbers fourteen nineteen, where Moses is asking and beg- pleading with God to pardon Israel for wanting to go back to Egypt because they think things are worse here than it was in Egypt. He says, pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven the pe- this people from Egypt, even until now. So the idea of this hesed of loving kindness is the idea of this loyal love, this faithful covenant love that God has had for his people all throughout the Bible. And here Naomi uses it to describe Orpah and Ruth. So Orpah and Ruth are very, very loyal daughters-in-law to Naomi for her to use this word to describe them. So you can see in the response for Naomi how much each of them, Orpah and Ruth, care for Naomi. They are weeping for her. They are crying out because they have to leave her. And they are there, she's telling them to leave her at least, and they know what could happen to her if she is alone and by herself as a widow in Bethlehem. And so verse 10 they said to her, no, but we will surely return with you to your people. So they both protest. And, of course, it's important to note that they are both willing to risk a life as widows in a foreign land for Naomi. Verses 11 and 12. But Naomi said, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Okay. 
Now, if that sounds ridiculous, that's because it's intended to sound ridiculous, all right? See, there's no realistic options for them going into Bethlehem, at least according to Naomi. They'd be putting, their, putting themselves in the same situation that Naomi is in. She's trying to show them compassion. Her situation is terrible. She doesn't want them to be in it with her. And um, she, she mentions all, all of this weird stuff about having another child and then marrying that child. And that's uh, because uh, in the law of the land, there's a law referred to as the Leverite marriage. Um, and we find that in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. I was going to read the whole thing because really the whole thing um, pertains to the entire story of Ruth. I'm going to just read a small portion of it instead. And it says, uh, when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no, has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Shall be the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Okay, so it's a way to care for the widow to make sure she is um, taken care of, and it's also a way to continue the line of the man who died, okay? Because that um, is one of the worst things that could happen to you as a family is that your name completely dies out and your lineage dies. So again, Naomi pleads with her daughters to return that the burden that she bears is too difficult for their, them to bear with her. And then we go on to the next passage, Ruth's plea to her mother-in-law, verses 14 and 15. We see the response. They lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, and her gods return after your sister-in-law. Okay, so Orpah returns home at Naomi's behest. Okay, and she goes back to the land of Moab, but Ruth clings to her. And the word for cling is used for when uh, two clods of dirt stick together after the rain, and they are difficult to pull apart. Um, Ruth is not letting go. She's not going anywhere. Uh, so Ruth, one thing to know is that Ruth tells, or Naomi tells Ruth, not only go back to her land, but to her gods. Okay, so Naomi's priority, I mean, she's, She's a grieving widow. Her priority right now is not necessarily for Ruth um, to come with her and to be with Yahweh. But we see, we'll see Ruth's response to that, verse 16 and 17. This is, might be the, one of the most famous passages in all the book of Ruth. And it says, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Okay, and so this is one of the reasons this is one of the most famous passages in the book is because it um, often has been used in uh, wedding vows. Um, I understand that to an extent because it's really an incredible vow of devotion. Uh, it's, it's not what I would recommend because it is a woman... Um, making a vow and dedicating her life to her mother-in-law. And so if you're using that in your marriage, it's a, it's a little weird. Um, just a little bit. Um, 
Ruth is telling Naomi in no uncertain terms that she is never, ever, ever leaving her. Naomi is making, not Naomi, Ruth is making a serious vow to Naomi, and she gives uh, uh, consequences for the vow. She invokes Yahweh's name. So I don't think this is just um, a Ruth um, vowing herself to Naomi, but I also think it's a, a Ruth showing that she will depend on Yahweh for um, her well-being. Because if she's going to Bethlehem, then she's going to have to depend on Yahweh. Um, and she is abandoning and leaving the gods of Moab for Yahweh. And that's a big deal. Chemish is not a, a nice guy, but she's willing to leave and depend on Yahweh for her well-being. Um, and she's going into a situation that will be very, very difficult for her and for Naomi. In verse 18, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So Naomi did what she could to dissuade Ruth, but Ruth was determined to stay with Naomi. So Naomi and Ruth begin their journey back home to Bethlehem. And we'll go to the final section here, verses 19 to 22, setting the stage for hope. Verse 19. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. Again, it's uh, not too short of a journey, but it's not too long that they couldn't make it themselves. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? So it's been a while since Naomi's been back, and there are people here who still remember who she is. Um, Them being stirred... I think it's a, an, an excitement. People are excited that Naomi is back, but obviously they see that she has come back um, with a different group of people. So Naomi responds to that in verse 20 and 21. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Um, Naomi is understandably still distraught over the, all of the loss in her life. And so she doesn't want to be called the pleasant one. Her life is not pleasant as she sees it. She wants to be called Mara because... Her life is bitter. We see a similar form of Mara used in Exodus 1, 13 through 14. And it says there, The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. So Naomi doesn't see, foresee a pleasant life for herself, but she foresees a bitter one. Um, And what we see here is Naomi, I mean, she says, why do you call me Naomi since the Lord, Yahweh, has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Almighty is El Shaddai. Okay, it means um, the sovereign one, Almighty. Uh, You see it all the time in the book of Job when uh, the book of Job is explaining um, who God is. Let me get back here. Uh, 
and that God does and has the ability to do as he wishes. Okay, and so this is, Naomi is a believer in Yahweh, but she's also very upset at the Lord. And it's understandable that she's very upset at the Lord because she understands that God is sovereign and that um, I think uh, God could have given her a better life than she has. She had the potential for a very good life. But that's not how it worked out. That's not the life that God gave her. And so she is bitter and she is upset at the Lord. Um, And that's okay. And we see that from the Psalms and from David that um, sometimes it's good to express those things to God. So she is a believer in the Lord. Um, she is just bitter, and so she wants to change her name to Mara. Not the pleasant one, but the bitter one. So she thinks she has come back empty, but she hasn't, right? I mean, she has Ruth. You have to imagine Ruth kind of standing off to the side while she's saying all this, and like, I understand you're upset. That's all right. Um, and Ruth is going to be her, to her, and we'll see much more than she could ever imagine. So verse 22 the end of this chapter. So Naomi returned, and with her, Ruth, the Moabites, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And you're going to notice from here on out in the book that they were, they're going to tell you or remind you over and over and over again that Ruth is from Moab, that she's a Moabitess, and that she is acting and uh, in the role um, that um, is not normal for a Moabite woman to be in. Um, and so they will constantly remember, remind you where, who Ruth is and where she came from. And the chapter ends on a note of hope because Naomi and Ruth are coming back just in time for the barley harvest. They left during a famine. And you'll see, Naomi, you notice Naomi said, uh, I went out full which she went out full during a famine, so there's a little bit of irony there. But the Lord has brought me back empty. Okay, but she, there's a moment of hope that the author leaves with us in the last verse because they came to Bethlehem, the house of bread, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Um, and so it leaves you curious for what is going to happen next. What's going to happen to these two widows in Bethlehem? What's going to happen to Ruth? What's going to happen to Naomi? How are they going to provide for themselves? They need food, and they need family. How are they going to get food and family? Um, We'll soon find out. So that's the end of the chapter. Okay. So what can we learn from this chapter? And I think the message of this chapter, and it's part of it, is really the message of the entire book, is that in the midst of Israel's darkest days, God is preparing a Redeemer and using the most unexpected people for his purposes. Uh, when you go through the story of Scripture, and I mentioned this before, and you go through the books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then finally Ruth, you wonder how God is ever going to redeem the entire world using this nation. It seems impossible. But the message of this book and the message hinted at in this chapter is that God is the God of chesed. 
He's a God of loyal love, of covenant love. And even in the darkest times when it seems like God is nowhere to be found, he is still working to keep his promises towards his people. And God is preparing for his Redeemer using the most unexpected of people. In the book of Judges, um, we see um, all of these mighty men. We see military leaders, strong warriors, uh, Gideon, right? Jephthah, Barak, Samson, um, all these warriors, all of these men who are so incredibly flawed and they have massive failures in their faith um, and they don't accomplish, I would say they don't accomplish nearly as much as we're going to see Ruth and Naomi, Naomi accomplish for the people of Israel in this book. And finally, what I want to leave you li- with is uh, this, the combination of those two thoughts. God does not forgive his promises, and he does not in the work in the way in which we think he, sh- he would or he should. So some of you might feel like wherever you are in life, you might not be of much use to God. I know I feel like that a lot of times. You might as well. But as we have seen and will see with Ruth and Naomi, that is certainly not true. And God can certainly use you in any way he wishes. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the story of Ruth. That in this uh, incredibly dark time in Israel's history, that you still remember your promises and you still keep them. And you still, and you use and work, use people and work in ways that we would never expect or plan to do. We thankful that we are thankful that you are sovereign and that you know what's best. We are thankful for the ultimate hope that we have, God, because of your Savior, because of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray these things. Amen.